Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include home price ranges, my interview with Townstone Financials, Barry Sterner and Garris Horn LLP's Richard Horn on the CFPB's recent judicial failures, and bank headlines to open the week. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help consumers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at mgic.com boost. If you're ever in a guessing game about the most expensive places to live in the United States, stick with the safe bets. New York and anything California. It seems the press has latched on to declining home sales, but declining due to high prices, lack of inventory, or lack of buyer's interest. What is it? Other stories indicate increasing home sales, but in certain price ranges, more builder inventory or continued millennial first-time homebuyer interest. Take your pick. Meanwhile, lenders and originators have their continued regulatory speed bumps. ORC reports that the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, or CSBS, on behalf of the NMLS Policy Committee, issued a request for public comments on proposed uniform state licensing standards for mortgage companies. The proposal would create a national standard for mortgage industry licensing to help improve uniformity within the state system and streamline the licensing process for mortgagees seeking licensure in multiple states. For the link to that story, as well as the latest employment opportunities, lender and vendor products and services, and more, visit robchrisman.com. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Townstone Financial's Barry Sterner and Garris Horn LLP's Richard Horn to talk about the CFPB's recent judicial failures. Barry Sterner is the owner of Townstone Financial Inc., who recently had a federal judge in Illinois rule in favor of him on a motion to dismiss with prejudice a redlining lawsuit filed by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In July 2020, the CFPB filed a lawsuit accusing the non-bank retail lender of discouraging prospective African-American borrowers in the Chicago metropolitan area from applying for mortgages. Richard Horn is a former senior counsel and special advisor in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Regulations and a former senior attorney at the FDIC. He's current co-managing partner of Garris Horn LLP. At the CFPB, Richard led the final rulemaking for the integrated disclosures under the Truth in Lending Act and the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, the TILA RESPA Integrated Disclosure Rule, also known as TRID. He also led the CFPB's design of the integrated disclosures, as well as the qualitative and quantitative consumer testing of the disclosures. The lawsuit brought to light comments made by Sterner on his radio show and podcast, which the CFPB claimed referenced majority African-American neighborhoods as places where you, quote, drive very fast and, quote, you don't look at anybody or lock anybody's eyes, end quote. In January 2017, Sterner spoke of going to a grocery store in downtown Chicago by saying he had to go to the Jewel on Division. We used to call it Jungle Jewel. There were people from all over the world going into that jewel. It was, it was packed. It was a scary place. The CFPB alleged that the term jungle was a derogatory reference associated with African Americans and foreigners. So let's hear from Richard and Barry. No one from the CFPB is, is here to 
speak. This is this is you having the floor. So well, obviously, with, so you with can that, have that with that in mind, mind anytime. <laughs> with that in mind, I know there's a lot. I know they don't understand the boundaries of their own authority. Um, they're constantly trying to push the envelope. That's what the Supreme Court will be hearing here in a little bit. I interviewed a, a lawyer the other week talking about that case, and qualitatively, I was thinking if the CFPB didn't spend time imposing such hefty fines on people, would it have gotten to this point? Because it seems like their, their mission was just to you know, make a, make a case of every little, every little small lender they could. And it's like, if you weren't picking on all these people, maybe, maybe people wouldn't have come at you so hard and uh, you wouldn't be at this point. I don't, I don't know. You know, corollary to that point is there's, there's a lot of um, bad activity in the industry, a lot of low-hanging fruit, uh, if you will, for the CFPB to go after. But yet they keep on choosing these edge cases to push the bounds of their legal authority. It's like they um, they don't want to go after plain vanilla bad actors. They find that, I don't know, boring. <laughs> um, they they constantly want to want to try these aggressive legal theories and and try and like push i guess push back um the 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 limits of their authority and unfortunately for an agency like the the cfpb and other federal agencies there's really no no way that they um lose because if they sue and win in court they win if they sue and get a settlement they win because the way the CFPB has told the industry to view their settlements, essentially they, they've said to view it as precedent. Uh, former Director Cordray was on the Hill saying, yeah, all compliance professionals should, uh, you know, compliance attorneys and, 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 and compliance staff should view our consent orders or settlement agreements as essentially precedent, as things you shouldn't do. Um, so they view that as a win as well. And now if they lose in court, you know, they've, there's no skin off their back. You know, they, they maybe use some internal resources uh, to, to do that, but their, <laughs> their salary check's still clear. Um, they can still ask for any amount of funding they want from the Federal Reserve, um, at least until the Supreme Court rules. And, and so, you know, things just go on uh, for them. It's like they, they just, they, they can't lose. Um, and so the only way to actually try and brush them back is is with challenging these aggressive legal theories or aggressive rulemaking or you know other other activities, um, and I think industry is starting to do that um, more. You know, Townstone is a great example. Um, you know, Barry has um, strong principles, believes in the rule of law, believes in the First Amendment, right to free speech, and 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 you know is is a great example of even. Uh, uh, David fighting against the Goliath of the uh, of the federal government, but you have other examples too. PayPal um, sued the CFPB over their prepaid card rule. You have uh, the Chamber of PPH PPH fought back, right? Yeah, PHH uh, fought PHH, back. PHH, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then you also have recently the Chamber of Commerce and some other banking trades suing the CFPB over their expansion of their UDAP uh, manual to include discrimination. Essentially, essentially. Um, extending discrimination to um, you know, non-credit products and services, and 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 un- putting it under another uh, legal um, legal definition as well. So that's there is some more examples recently of 
the industry fighting back against the CFPB. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps that's the only way to stop them because they don't feel the, the they don't feel the loss. They don't, you know, experience the loss unless someone fights them and, and puts, you know, um, uh, has the, the ju- judiciary put a boundary on their legal authority. Yeah, very good point. Barry, so you're, you're the owner of Townstone Financial and, and you were accused of violating the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, but you succeeded in your battle with the CFPB, which is great news. And, and obviously this was a, a long process and I'm sure a, a strenuous and arduous one for you took its toll. Can you give kind of a high level overview of what you were accused of and, and why ultimately it wasn't true? Well, the gist of the accusations um, really centered around the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau extending the Equal Credit Opportunity Act from applicants to non-applicants. We really don't talk about (laughs) what the Consumer Finance and Protection Bureau's main goal was here. Um, My comments and everything else and and anything else brought in, including myself, changing to a broker and, and, and lowering our net worth was just noise to confuse the public and everybody else and, and add redlining on there and racism and all those terms so that nobody would want to help me. Um, that's my opinion. And it's always been my opinion. I mean, uh, and Rich can chime in on this and, and give his opinion, obviously, but that was what they were trying to do. Would you agree, Rich? Yeah, I think the CFPB was trying to extend um, redlining theory, which had only before Townstone been used against depository institutions, against banks. Um, They tried to extend it to non-banks. And there's a big distinction between banks and non-banks. As you know, banks are subject to the Community Reinvestment Act and have obligations under that to to lend uh, to uh, LMI communities. Um, But non-banks don't. Um, Non-banks aren't subject to CRA unless it's under uh, state law. So as they were trying to extend the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, they picked Townstone Financial. And in order to, in order to make a case, I guess, they went, um, we we, we do podcasts just as you do. Um, We also had a radio show on conservative radio on Saturday uh, afternoons in Chicago. Um, we did that from 2000 and I think it was 2010 to 2018. So you're talking about eight years. We did podcasts probably for about three years. And as they picked out about six minutes out of thousands and thousands of minutes of, 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 of snippets, I mean, of comments that we said um, about social, economic, um, and other items that were community-related um, current events that we talked about on our show. Um, I lived basically in the South Loop area, the south side of Chicago. My, my, my co-hosts all lived in Chicago, and we would come in on a Friday or Saturday. Uh, we'd come in on a Saturday, and we'd look at current events. And obviously, um, during that time, I shouldn't say obviously, but during that time in 2016, and 2015, where these comments were pulled from before the pandemic, before all the wokeness, before all this was going on, 
And basically at a time when we were still allowed to discuss what was going on in the world and people respected other people's opinion, um, they pulled these comments out and said that they were racist comments when we were talking about what was happening in our community. And I don't know who, uh, anybody from Chicago, anybody knowing anyone from Chicago. I mean, we're all good here in Chicago of us talking about what's happening, the crime rate or some social, economical, societal issue that we're having here. Um, but when people from out of our area come in and, and degrade our city, we're not too happy about that. And Obviously, the Consumer Finance and Protection Bureau came in. For some reason, they were protecting a grocery store that we had, um, a grocery store that we all went to, that we named a nickname about that grocery store. We also, on another comment you'll hear, we're, we're talking about um, crime happening on the south side of Chicago, which was affecting myself and everybody else living in Chicago. Um, and then there was an off the cuff comment about skydiving and, and, and walking on the south side, all taken out of context, nothing discriminatory or racial. We weren't trying to offend anybody. Um, and everybody who's, who gets to hear these comments um, finally figures out that, you know, there was nothing there at all. The last part of this that we should always throw in there and, and Rich can get into this uh, about the comments is that we, we did a study, um, and, and Rich can go into that, where, where how, what do you call the survey, the study, Rich? I always say it wrong. Yeah, we, we did a study that involved qualitative consumer testing, uh, where we played the uh, audio clips, and not just a little, little short, you know, 30-second statements that the CFB cut out uh, and put in their complaint, but actual um clips that put those statements in context so we would take about four minutes before four minutes after so the participants would be able to hear those statements as they fit into the conversation and <clears throat> played those for participants in the consumer testing and then asked them really just to talk about it there was no prompting uh, um uh, uh, you know there was no no bias introduced into the testing at all through the questioning and we just asked them you know what what, what do you think about the statements essentially and and nobody was offended by oh, actually, i actually mentioned these are um, we tested these with actual um residents of the south side of chicago african-american residents of the south side of chicago um which as, as you know from from the complaint the cfb alleged would would be um uh, discouraged <clears throat> by these statements but what we found was the exact opposite. Um, no participant in our testing was offended at all. Um, in fact, many of them reacted positively. All of them said that they would recommend Townsend to their family or friends. And a number of them said, hey, yeah, I really like this guy. He knows our neighborhood. Um, maybe he can help me find a home. And, and, and a couple of them asked for uh, Townstone's contact information on the spot because they, they really wanted to talk to talk to Barry. So it's actually um, <clears throat> when you hear these statements in context, it's actually the opposite reaction from what the CFPB said. And I think in part that's because what Townsend was trying to do with this show and what's evident when when you hear the show and the statements in context was um, to encourage investment 
in in Chicago in the city. Uh, you know, for example, the the one statement about the grocery store. First of all, that statement's a fact. Everybody who know knew that area, um, who knows that area, um, knows that that's what people referred to the the grocery store as. Um, but that that whole discussion was about trying to um, tell young people to consider buying in transitional neighborhoods because although there may have been a societal problem like the neighborhood being a, a food desert which is the term used when there's no place to no supermarkets around although the neighborhood might have been a food desert um, years ago it's gotten better and is now a desirable neighborhood and so um, when you hear it in context you realize that the 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 actual purpose of these statements is the exact opposite of what the CFPB alleged as well. It wasn't trying to discriminate. It was trying to encourage people to invest in these neighborhoods. So um, the testing showed that these statements weren't discouraging. Um, and I don't know, Barry, if you want to get into the to the Humda data analysis that we did as well, or if we just want to talk about the, the clips right now. Um, the other thing, uh, Rob, about the grocery store that everyone should understand and and we, we and, and they just they just had the uh, that that House Financial uh, Committee there, and again it it, it it was mistermed because obviously the 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 woman from Massachusetts, the Congresswoman from Massachusetts, who said she's from Chicago, um, should know that the grocery store that we were talking about <laughs> was on in on the north side of Chicago in the Gold Coast, within a block and a half of the most expensive mansions. Where actually our fine governor today, uh, Mr. Pritzker's family has a huge mansion, is literally less than a mile away um, from this grocery store. Um, the reason why they decided to say that this grocery store, for some reason, used it because we use the term jungle, that that was referring for in some way, shape, or form to African Americans, was because at one time in the 1990s, well after we made these comments. When we made these comments, the, the, the Chicago Housing Authority um, ha, uh, building, which was, was well known, Cabrini Green, um, had been knocked down for, I don't know, probably 15 years. It didn't even exist anymore um, when we made these comments. So how, how they put the two and two together um, made no sense whatsoever. And it continues today um, if, if there was a fact, fact checker on this whatsoever, they continue somehow to tell the public that this grocery store was on the south side and it wasn't anywhere near there. So, well, what one more thing about the clip, especially the two things about the jungle jewel clip. One is, as I mentioned, the participants in testing reacted positively to all the statements, but in particular about the jungle jewel clip, the, the participants that heard that clip said, Oh yeah, I know that story. That was a crazy place, and just reiterated what Barry said on on the on the radio show, and and agreed with him. Um, and we actually found a ton of Yelp reviews that mention the Jungle Jewel and say the same things that Barry said about it on the radio. Oh, that you know, the, the it's a terribly run store. It's very hot and humid in there. There's a ton of people in there. It's really crowded. Um, we found a, a, a blog post from an African-American female blogger that says she hates the jungle jewel shopping there because, um, because there's quote unquote street crazies there in, in the shop and, and that she doesn't go there anymore. And, and, and so 
there's all of this information we pointed out to the CFPB before they sued to say, hey, look, this this is just a, you know, the owner of Townstone Barry is just re recounting a historical fact about living in that neighborhood and about that store. And, you know, the CFPB apparently doesn't care about actual facts, historical facts. They just, as we we're talking about before, they wanted a non-bank mortgage company to extend this redlining theory to, to say to all the other non-bank mortgage companies out there, hey, you have affirmative obligations to market to uh, these particular demographics who are interested in, um, in, in all cases, it's African-Americans and Hispanics. You have to hire loan officers that are African-American and Hispanic. You can't just have all white loan officers and you have to um, be essentially in parity with the average of your market area in terms of getting applications and originations from the African-American and Hispanic communities in your market. And they basically want to extend these affirmative obligations onto non-banks, essentially create a community reinvestment act for non-banks through the, extending this legal theory to Townstone. And they, I think what they saw was, oh, well, these, these statements will, will make, make it look like this case is a slam dunk. Um, yeah. Everyone will get behind us. And so the actual facts that people in the neighborhood actually liked Barry's statements, which we, again, we told the CFB about before they sued, didn't matter that. You know, all the only thing that matters to them is is getting their guy and extending their authority. Does this give you hope that the CFPB's fangs will will recede a little bit, or they won't go after companies with such bloodlust as as you might put it in the future? Do you think that there's any learning lesson to be had for them? So, as a legal matter, I think that. You know, non-bank mortgage companies and, and banks still have to worry about the government's redlining theory because I don't think this will slow the CFPB down. Uh, I'm not seeing it. We have a number of redlining exams and investigations at our firm. I'm not seeing it, unfortunately. Um, I'm, I'm also, um, you know, I, th I think it's helpful to note that um, there's another statute, the Fair Housing Act, that applies to mortgage lending and is a, a non-discrimination statute that the government can use. This case was only under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, ECOA, because that's the only statute that the CFPB has authority under. But the DOJ, the federal banking agencies um, can use the Fair Housing Act. And then there's also the state AGs out there that could pick up some slack. So I, I don't think this is going to slow um, the government down, unfortunately. What I think it does do is um, it is hopefully show to the industry that others can win and fight the CFPB on these aggressive legal theories, and especially redlining. If the CFPB does go it alone in the future under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, like they did in the Townstone case, again, you know, DOJ wasn't part of this case, um, then then maybe others will, will try and fight this legal theory. Uh, or maybe others will even try and fight this theory under the Fair Housing Act. I think that there's some room to defend these theories under the Fair Housing Act as well. I guess on my side, Robbie, as a small businessman, um, I'm just hopeful that they go after the bad actors. You know, what's always bothered me about this case is, you know, Townstone, uh, my employees, um, and by the way, every one of my employees has been deposed on this for about the last eight years. They got nothing from any employee. 
They took all our emails, looked at all those over a 10-year period or eight-year period, whatever, found nothing there. Um, they were going after our texts after that to, to read all our phone texts after that. You know, my hope is, and I don't have any problem with the Consumer Finance and Protection Bureau. I follow all the rules. I always have. My hope is that they go after the bad actors to come and pick on a small company that they didn't think was going to be able to defend themselves, which we wouldn't have been able w- without Rich Horn and, 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 and Mark Servcott and Sean Burke. And then PLF, Pacific Legal Foundation, obviously came in. Um, a non-for-profit and, 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 and took this case. Otherwise, I would have been like everybody else having to settle. So is my hope that it's going to end? Listen, anybody who's redlining, anyone who's doing something wrong, I think they should go after. But they all the facts in this case showed them that we did nothing wrong, right? Not one employee in all the depositions that they took, and I don't know how many they took, Rich, what? 10, 15, there were so many depositions of all my employees there and all our emails and found nothing and still continued with the case. My hope is they go after the bad actors. That's all I can say. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and and share your side of things. And uh, I I know there's a lot of people out there that that think the CFPB is way overstepping their boundaries, yourself and, and myself included. And uh, I, I think this is kind of a case in point of that. So thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Rob. The major headline to open the week was that First Citizens Bank will buy Silicon Valley Bank's loans and deposits with no mention of the MBS portfolio, which caused MBS prices to drop and rates to rise. Despite the recent concerns over the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and other banks, Federal Reserve officials continue to describe the economy in favorable terms. While no one expected them to say the banking system was anything but secure, they reaffirmed their intention to fight inflation in their latest monetary policy statement. The current level of inflation, as well as a tight job market, likely merit continued monetary policy tightening. However, the latest policy statement contained less aggressive wording and allows the committee to pivot if the economy cools dramatically. The committee still expects one or more rate increases before the end of the year, while the markets have priced in two to three rate cuts. Given the current situation in the banking sector, credit availability will decrease without any further intervention by the Fed and will have the effect of monetary tightening and, by extension, the desired disinflationary outcome. Today's calendar is underway with advanced indicators for February that won't move rates. Those include the trade deficit, negative 91.6 billion, retail inventories up 0.8%, and wholesale inventories up 0.2%. Later this morning brings Redbook same store sales, January housing prices from both Case Shiller with its three month look back, and FHFA, consumer confidence in March, and Richmond Fed manufacturing and services. The U.S. Treasury then auctions $43 billion of five year notes. Step right up and buy. One Fed speaker is currently scheduled, Vice Chair for Supervision Barr, testifying along with FDIC Chair Grunberg before the Senate Banking Committee. And we begin the day with agency and best prices worse than eighth, the 10-year yielding 3.57 after closing yesterday at 3.53%, and the two-year at 3.99%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. While out walking along the edge of a pond just outside my house in the villages with my soon-to-be ex-husband, we were discussing property settlement and other divorce issues, we were surprised by a huge 12-foot alligator, which suddenly emerged from the murky water and began charging us with its large jaws wide open. 
She must have been protecting her nest because she was extremely aggressive. If I had not had my little Beretta 25 caliber pistol with me, I would not be here today. Just one shot to my estranged husband's kneecap was all it took. The gator got him easily, and I was able to escape by just walking away at a brisk pace. The amount I saved in lawyer's fees was really incredible, and his life insurance was a real bonus. <laughs> Thanks again to MGIC. Since inventing the modern form of private mortgage insurance in 1957, MGIC has insured more than 13.5 million mortgage loans. With innovative products, tools, and strategies that help customers solve problems and fuel growth, MGIC is a true partner to lenders. Explore tools and solutions to boost your business at mgic.com boost. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.